and welcome in episode number two, Turning the Corner, a Detroit Tigers podcast. I am Kieran Steckley. With me, my partner in this venture, my co-pilot, Cody Stavenhagen, broadcasting live from Detroit. Cody, how are you doing today, man? Hey, doing good, Kieran. We're on episode number two. We are savvy veterans now. We are savvy veterans. We are slowly but surely mastering the technology that is the podcast sphere. I am very much elated at the positive feedback we got. We announced it on Friday. We're recording this on Detroit Day, by the way, 3-13. We announced it on Friday the 12th. Got a lot of positive feedback, a lot of excitement, enthusiasm. It means a lot to me. I know it means a lot to Cody. And we are really excited to do this, and we hope you guys will enjoy listening as much as we enjoy doing it. Now, Cody, you are about a week removed from your Lakeland trip. We recorded our first episode while you were in Lakeland. Now that you've come back to uh, what I assume is colder Detroit, what were some of your impressions of spring training in a pandemic, distancing, virtual interviews, all that stuff? Just kind of take me through your Lakeland experience. Yeah, it's, it's not as warm up here in Detroit, but it has been like unseasonably good weather. So hopefully that sticks around a little longer. We will see. Um, anyway, this spring training was, it was just different, you know. I think the greatest thing about spring training last year was just being able to roam around the backfields, see everything that was going on. You could have casual conversations with members of the front office. You could pick up on things that the players were saying to each other. You got these dialogue, you got just great little snippets. You could really learn a lot. Well, this year there was an area, you know, basically roped off where the media was supposed to be about 20 feet from, um, 20 yards from like one of the backfields and you couldn't even really see what was going on. Turned out the better view was to go like across the street in Lakeland where some fans hang out and, and watch the workouts. You can basically see another set of fields from over there. But there was no way to really see all four fields at once, so you couldn't always watch the guys throw their bullpens. You were so far away that, that when you could, you couldn't really pick up pitcher spin or, or really see what guys were throwing. Um, so it made it tough. All that said, I think there's been, you know, a vibe has become kind of cliched in the baseball world. It's almost become like the best shape of your life type thing in spring training. But the vibe at Tiger Spring Training has been like a noticeable uptick each of the past three years. My first year in Lakeland, it was like, yeah, this team's really bad, and they're okay with being bad, and there are a couple prospects who are a long way from the big leagues. And then last year, it was like, okay, these pitching prospects are legit, and they're on the rise. And then this year, it's kind of like, okay, some of these prospects are in the big leagues. The other guys are not far away. And A.J. Hinge is taking over. There's definitely a more serious feel to things, and I think that was probably the biggest thing that stood out, a a more serious feel to things. The Tigers probably aren't going to be winners this year, but you can feel the ramp up a little bit. This is is not just, you know, fun and games anymore, and it's okay if if we lose 100 games. That's definitely not the the vibe. I'm glad you brought that up because a while back you wrote a very, very deep dive into – I would say is all things A.J. Hinch, his past, before Houston, what shaped him, the trials and tribulations of trying to come up in baseball, being a hotshot prospect, not really panning out, and, and, and how all those things brought him here. You mentioned that he 
he's ramping things up. It's a different attitude going on right now. What is the AJ Hinch MO for this team right now? Because from the outside looking in, things, if I were to kind of classify it with one word, it would be things are serious now. Is that is that is that sort of is that sort of vibe with what you're thinking, what you're observing? Yeah, I think uh, like I already used that word, kind of a more serious tone. I think also it's just like there are no. I, I mean, he said it. He said it on the TV broadcast the other day. I'm not sure if he was giving us a shout out for the podcast or what, but you know, he was on the broadcast for an inning and he said, "We're you know, it's time to turn the corner and making it hard to be a big leaguer." So he dropped "turn the corner," which I I was a big fan of. And I, I also think that said a lot. No roster spots are really guaranteed this year. You know, if you're a guy like a Harold Castro, like, you're going to have to earn your spot on the big league roster. Um, this rotation is getting pretty competitive, especially with the way Julio Tehran and, and Jose Urania threw the other day. For a guy like Michael Fulmer, I, you know, you're going to have to earn your spot in this rotation. I think that's kind of the main the mindset that A.J. Hinch is bringing it's a function of having a little bit of a better roster and some young talent on the rise. I think it's also just the, um, the type of culture Hinge wants to have where, you know, let's be honest, the past couple of years, you could have Dawel Lugo playing third base and it didn't really matter how he performed because you, you wanted to give the guy a shot and uh, you had, you know, Kristen Stewart, um, people like that. Like, there are no more free passes. Like, if you can't produce, you're probably not going to be on the big league roster. That in itself is actually a noticeable change from the past two or three seasons. It seems to me like Tigers Twitter can be pretty harsh in general when the team has had the losing record that it has the past couple of years, but they're pretty harsh about Ron Gardenhire. And the way that I kind of look at his tenure is I appreciate what he did knowing what the job was. The job was essentially occupy time. You were there to kind of guide guys, to show them how to be a big leaguer. You weren't necessarily, you know, development, maybe that's part of it, but a lot of these guys that, the majority of the guys that he managed, if the Tigers rebuild, manifests itself to the, to the where they want it to be. Oh yeah, very few. Probably aren't gonna be part of that team. Like, you know, like Lugo, you know, guys like that and and you know, and including a lot of guys on this roster right now. I mean, that's just the reality of it. So like I appreciate that a guy who was in his last legs and a lifelong of being involved in major league baseball kind of took a job that was not sexy that there wasn't really going to be a huge reward. And then you throw in the fact of his age and some health stuff and this last year was a pandemic. I mean, like, I'm appreciative for what he did for Tigers baseball in that facet. I understand the criticism, but I, I think that needs to be noted with Ron Gardenhire. That being said, it is really refreshing to see A.J. Hinch saying, all right, enough of that. Like, we're not, we're not, that's not what we're about anymore. I feel like AJ was one of those guys that the Tigers could should consider themselves really lucky. I don't know what kind of parallel to to uh, to draw from like other sports, but you just don't get a team in the state that the Tigers are in hire someone with the accolades that he has. Obviously, the reason being what went down in Houston with the sign ceiling scandal 
but they were able to take advantage of a discrepancy in the market. And I, I think for all the faults that, again, Tiger Sturdivant mentioned for Alavela, I think he deserves a ton of credit for being able to convince AJ to join in at the Tigers at this time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you, if you, you know, last summer I wrote a big profile on Alavila and kind of his background. A lot of people still don't realize he he started as a coach at like a Division two and NAIA school college. He was an assistant coach. He became an athletic director. Alavila's strengths throughout his career have always kind of been managing other people, and he's kind of he's low key good at creating an infrastructure, delegating, and trusting others. Now, will those tools translate to building a World Series roster? I don't know. They, they might not. But I think that is one of Alavila's strengths. I think you saw big time in the Hinch hire. Hinch was the guy he wanted. He went out and got him. And I think he's given Hinch a lot of power, a lot of free reign to um, shape this organization the way he wants. It's not totally Hinch running the show. And there, there are definitely still some things that, you know, I think even players that Al... Um, will be kind of partial to over the next couple of years. But absolutely, I think I think Al Avila hired AJ Hinch knowing that this is a smart guy who could be more hands-on than Ron Gardenhire was in player development and talent acquisition. And so so that was absolutely one of the reasons Al Avila liked AJ Hinch so much. Does Al have the ability to the humility, I should I should say, to listen to AJ when it's a guy that maybe Al liked, traded for when this rebuild began. And if AJ has to say, look, the kid can't cut it, is is Al capable of getting on board and kind of swallowing his pride there? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think hubris is not one of Al Avila's flaws, you know. Um, he might have other flaws as a general manager, uh, orchestrating creative trades, you know. Could, you could say that's a flaw, but I don't think – Swallowing his pride will be a problem. I think he trusts AJ Hinch. You know, I think we'll see some interesting personnel decisions when it comes to like, what do you do with a Bo Burrows who was a former first round pick? What do you do with, um, you know, some of the guys acquired in the Verlander trade or some some other like trade chips guys that Avila might be more loyal to than perhaps new coaching staff coming in with fresh eyes will be loyal to. But other than that, I think, um, you know, I think Avila will be totally willing to um, to work with Hinch and, and uh, try to take this thing into the future. So give me some key points, some teases for your AJ Hinch profile, which again is available on The Athletic. Uh, if you're not a subscriber, recommend subscribing. There's always specials that are going on if, if you want to go cheap, but it's definitely worth the full price of a subscription. And like I said, that basically covered everything AJ Hinch related. And as we wrap up this AJ Hinch portion of the pod, just kind of tell me your biggest takeaways from your reporting, from you know talking to AJ and and the people that you know know him best. Like, what do you think were the biggest takeaways from that piece? Yeah, it was it was one of those things where it was like, okay, the Tigers hired a new manager. I should probably write something big about this guy. But I didn't know exactly what. I didn't know what I wanted the story to be or what the angle was. So you kind of call a lot of people and you do the reporting. And, you know, sometimes the story takes shape as you're reporting. It was a lot of just, I want to talk about AJ Hinch. I want to try to understand him, get to know his background better. Um, 
so the story obviously you know talks a lot about what the past year of AJ Hinch's life was like uh, as he dealt with the suspension as he kind of reckoned with some of his thoughts on you know how the Astros got to that point and why he let the sign stealing happen under his watch he didn't necessarily divulge new details but I thought he was pretty introspective um, in in my chat with him about that whole thing you know and, and you see more of the human side of AJ Hinch too growing up in Oklahoma um, his dad died when he was a freshman in college and, and the death of his father definitely was a massive impact in his life and to the point where his best friend Brody Van Wagenen who used to be the GM of the Mets and is now um, you know kind of the head of Rock Nation was like I think his father's death created a level of internal focus that basically made AJ Hinch you know the manager he is now uh, so, so I think that's very interesting. It touches on that. It also just touches at his time at Stanford and more of, okay, this is this guy who's always been stud athlete, star student, like well-regarded guy, good character. The only, the only two big failures in his life were he wasn't quite the MLB player people thought he would be, and his first stint managing the Diamondbacks was kind of a disaster. And now suddenly he's at, he's at you know, crosshairs of real criticism hatred you can see there are like 300 comments on this story most of them are like aj hinch is a cheater and, it, and look it's an interesting dynamic because yeah this guy was he served the second longest suspension a manager has ever served in baseball he was involved with a historic cheating scandal um but i think the more i dove into aj hinch's past the more i realized this is a pretty sharp guy um, who was caught in a really complicated situation in Houston where he wasn't really the ringleader of the sign-stealing scandal. That was more Carlos Beltran and Alex Cora. He was just in a weird leadership position where he didn't quite do enough to stop it. I think he deserved the punishment he got, um, but I think his second chance with the Tigers is, is also deserved, and I think you know it's going to be really interesting to see how this thing plays out over the next few years. And I only say this because it's something that doesn't get talked about all that much but like Alex Cora is also managing so it's not just it's not just AJ Hinch who got like a second chance Alex Cora essentially got a second first chance at being a manager like there's no track record of him being a manager so I just think that's worth noting that there are and of course the players in Houston are still all you know they're in the lineup they're signing big contracts Carlos Correa is a guy that's going to get a huge contract either before the season or next winter so everyone's moved on it's not just AJ Hinch the dynamics of it that he was involved did he do enough did he not you know what did he didn't know all that stuff maybe we'll never know the answer but I just think it's worth noting that he's not the only one who is able to move on with his life so I, I, I just think that's worthwhile so the the major premise of this pod is what are the Tigers gonna do with their infield because there's a lot of names there there's a lot of guys that have this tool but don't have that tool are somewhat playing out of position and that's one of the things that they're gonna have to figure out for this year for the next couple years and and, you know do they have enough pieces to to grow their infield down the line focus on the draft free agency you know all that stuff so Mommy, just start out with this, Cody. Can you tell me who is your, what is your starting infield 
if the Tigers had to play opening day today? Okay, I want to start by dialing everything back and just saying this infield makes my head hurt. For the past two years, it has made my head hurt. For the past two years, as much as we talk about, oh, the Tigers have made progress, like they're, they're turning the corner in the rebuild, I have no idea what your infield looks like in 2024. I think there's only one guy for sure we can say is probably a part of that, and it's Spencer Torkelson, and we don't really know if he's going to be at third base or first base. I don't think we know much more about the long-term future of this infield than we did a year ago or two years ago, and I think that's pretty concerning. So as it stands right now, we're in spring training. There are a ton of questions to answer. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I think you know my opening day infield right now – I'm still going to give Renato Nunez the benefit of the doubt at first base because the Tigers don't have a first baseman on their 40-man roster. So if they carry Nunez, that's going to mean someone else has to get uh, DFA'd and they place Nunez on the 40-man. I, I think it makes sense to at least give him a shot. Jonathan Scope will be your second baseman. Willie Castro is going to be your shortstop. Uh, that means Jamer Candelario at third base. But really, I think the X factor in all of this is Isak Paredes, who AJ Hinch seems to love and really wants to keep on the roster. Um, but can you get him enough ABs if he's kind of your, your, you know, fifth infielder? Or do you not carry Nunez and you go um, Candelario at first, Paredes at third? You know, but, but Isak, of course, has also worked a lot at second this spring. And I'm still not sold on his range, but I have been pleasantly surprised just watching his actions, right? His footwork, his hands. He looks to me like a guy who can play second base in that regard. And again, he doesn't necessarily have to be a plus defender at second base. If he can be adequate, even if he's negative four, negative five defensive runs saved, but if he hits, you know, again, maybe it's optimistic to say this guy hits 280 with the 350 OBP. It'd probably definitely be optimistic like this year, which would be basically his rookie season. But if that's the type of hitter he becomes, that's still a three and a half win player right there. Like that's pretty big time. So anyway, I think like the entire way you construct this infield kind of determine is based on your plans with Isak Paredes and and after the Tigers figure that out they can start mixing and matching so Renato Nunez is kind of your other wild card in the whole factor and to this point we really haven't seen Nunez like he had some intake uh I don't want to say issues but the process it was complicated yeah I think it's mostly visa issues traveling uh internationally and then you have to go through the intake process so he didn't start playing in spring training games until a couple days ago. Probably not ideal for a guy who's on a minor league deal and just trying to make the club. Um, granted, this is a dude who hit, you know, 31 homers two years ago. He's got a lot of pop in the bat. AJ Hinch just seems to indicate that he just wants Nunez to prove that he can he can be an adequate defender. He played a little bit of third with the Orioles. He's not a good third baseman. The metrics on him as a first baseman aren't great. There's a thought that maybe he'd be best served as a DH. Well, the Tigers, of course, have a DH in a guy named Miguel Cabrera, who, by the way, will probably play um, once or twice a week at first base this year. But I think that's what we're looking to see. How good of a defender is Nunez? Can he be enough of a you know, well-rounded package, not just a power hitter, to merit a roster spot? especially if it means comparing him up against a young player like an Isak Paredes, and then how badly the, do the Tigers want um, a, another utility guy. I think you have a super utility guy in Nico Goodrum, who we will see roam all around the infield. Do you want to carry a Harold Castro or a Greg Garcia in addition to that? That question then depends on, okay, do you want 
a five-man rotation or a six-man rotation? Do you want to begin the year with an eight-man bullpen? Um, so that, those are all questions that are going to play out over the next couple of weeks. Uh, but Nunez is definitely going to be one of the guys to watch and, and a guy who I think needs to show something over the next couple of weeks as well. Is it just me or does it feel like everything's crunched timeline wise? Like with, with the uncertainty of when spring training would begin to be, you know, you know, going back a couple months when the, the union and, and MLB were negotiating and then they just kind of said, all right, well, we don't have to do anything. So we're going to start right here. And then you have visa issues with a couple players and an intake process. And we're just now getting guys like coming in and, right now is when spring training games are starting to ramp up a little bit like we're we're gonna see more major league-ish pitchers some guys are already going down the minor league camp is there enough time for guys like nunez on minor deals i think there are two ways to look at that one is that spring training is probably too long and we're into the third week of this thing and it's already starting to drag a little bit um another two weeks of games that's probably plenty of time to you know maybe not to like again anyone who's making their judgments based on performance and spring training games probably doesn't know that much about baseball because it takes hitters and pitchers alike a while to get up to speed there's certain things you can look for but i don't i don't think even aj hinch is going to make many roster decisions based solely on spring training stats like obviously if you play well in spring that's a plus but uh, some guys are notorious for playing terrible in spring training because they're just getting their timing down or whatever it may be. The other way to look at that is, yeah, everything got off to a late start, especially if you're like, when I was going over the infield earlier, I almost forgot about Jonathan Scope. He's probably the best player on this team, and I almost forgot about him because he hasn't played in the game yet. Or, or like this weekend, as we're recording this pod, it was going to be his first game. Um, because he just now got in from Coruscant, you know, he's, he had to deal with that and then the intake issues. Um, so granted, luckily he's like given a, a roster spot, no doubt for a guy like Nunez. Yeah. You know, you want to make a good first impression. Nunez got like three days of live BP before he was thrown in games. Whereas other guys, you know, probably really had like a full week to just kind of mess around on the backfield and track pitches. So I think he's also probably is, is going to feel a need to play some catch-up. Does that guy does that make a guy press mentally? Like, what could that mean? I do. I, I do think that all makes this a little bit of a different spring training in that regard. Yeah, and I guess my main thing is outside of the spring training games themselves, but just sort of getting A, into shape, and B, just acclimated to playing. Like, I, with the drills and batting practice and all that stuff, like, the games, I do agree, can, can be, like, a misguided way of judging whether a guy's ready but there's got to be some indication that he's ready or not like i just there's a reason why you don't just start right away every sport has preseason games and training camps and all that stuff so if i'm looking at it my main worry is is he does he have enough time to get acclimated i guess would be would be my main thing with uh with how they've had to do it with the intake processes and and various visa issues and stuff like that so uh real quick we don't have to spend too much time on it I just kind of laugh when I like hear or see Miguel Cabrera playing first base. Like, I, like it's just, I, I don't know, like I, unnecessary. Like it's sort of like a concession to the guy. I feel like that that he wants to play first base, so they want to put him out and play first base. He feels like he's more engaged, involved. Does it actually make him hit better if if he feels that way? Like I don't know. It just. 
you sort of want him to ride off into the sunset as a DH because that's the natural progression of guys like him. And if he's going to be playing one to two days, I guess maybe it's good they don't have a whole lot of depth at deep, uh, at first base because if they did, like if this was like a, if he was a third baseman, I would consider that a complete waste of time. So. Like, where do you line on this whole, like, we got to get Miggy one to two days a week playing first base thing? Yeah, I don't love it just because I think the most important thing is keeping him healthy. And I don't know that trotting a guy with chronic right knee pain out on the field every day is is a, a good way to keep him healthy. Not every day, even if it's just a couple of days a week. I don't know that that is a great idea. Um, there's part of me that I was about to bring up. Miguel Cabrera might actually be your best defensive first baseman guy's way more nimble than he gets credit for and then i looked at his stats on fan graphs and yeah he's uh he's a below league average defensive first baseman um negative eight defensive runs saved in 2017 which is probably really the last time he was there um often and then but but it's also look when you have one guy strictly limited to the dh spot that really limits your roster you have no flexibility with your lineup um, also, in terms of just like maximizing value, if you're only a DH, like you have to be a really good hitter to justify only being a DH. Miguel Cabrera, again, this is his Fangraphs wins above replacement over the past four seasons: negative 0 0.2, 0 0.7, negative 0 0.4, 0 0.3. Uh, playing a little first base isn't that really going to make a huge difference there, but I think it speaks to the fact that. This guy has not actually been a valuable player in four seasons. So if you're going to keep him around and pay him 30 mil, you probably need to be able to use him in more than one role. If this allows you to get Jonathan Scope off his feet one day and let Scope DH, I think that's a good thing for your team. Um, so I, I can see the justification behind it. And then in a way, you get to please Miggy too. And that's, that's probably also important for uh, your clubhouse and keeping him locked in and engaged. Best glove in this infield, Nico Goodrum. Uh, yeah, I think so. And, um, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, there were some adjustments done to, like, defensive run save stats from Sports Info Solutions that tell us Jamer Candelario might not be near as good defensively at third base as we had been led to, uh, led to believe. They, like, reviewed some, some video or something, and a lot of these metrics got altered. So, again, for the crowd who doesn't like defensive metrics, there's some pretty big justifications because suddenly Jamer Candelario doesn't grade out as well at third as he once did. Nico Goodrum, both metrically and I think just even on the eye, uh, the eye test, really good um, infielder, whether it's short, mostly at short, second to, I don't think he's quite as good at third. Uh, but you watch him play, he's got that he's got that footwork. I mean, you know, playing infield is like, is like a dance and he's very nimble on his feet, um, smooth actions. Yeah, I don't think there's... And Scope, Scope's a really good second baseman, too. I think, you know, he was a, a Gold Glove finalist last year and probably doesn't get enough credit. Scope's a really good second baseman. And and just for the record, I've I've said this about Nico for a couple years now, and, and there hasn't been anything to take me off of this take. I think he's a big leaguer. I think he's a legit big leaguer. I think he could have a role on a playoff contender, championship contender team. I With his versatility, being a switch hitter... Uh, like I, I, he's a guy that I like. I like having him on the team. It, unfortunately, with the bat, we, I think have we given up the fact that he could be an everyday guy, like uh, you know, plug and play at this position, or is he still young enough that we think like his bat could come around? 
I think the Nico Goodrum we saw in 2020 was, it was kind of not fair. He had such a bad year and a shortened season that it really kind of changed the way we view him. Now we're all like, oh, this guy can't really hit well enough to, yeah, to be an everyday player. I don't think that's entirely true. Nico had definitely shown some potential in his bad. If you look back at, at 2019, he had, uh, I'm pulling it up right now, I mean, he was worth 1.9 wins above replacement. He had, uh, he hit with a little pop, you know, he had 12 homers and, and 16 the year before that. Um, he walks, you know, anywhere between 8 to 10% of the time. That's a pretty good profile. Like, that's not, he's not going to be an all-star, but that's a, a guy who could be pretty valuable as a middle infielder. So I, I will be really interested to see. I would not totally write off Nico Goodrum returning to being the everyday shortstop guy by the end of the season. And maybe that means you move Willie Castro to... Second, I don't know what you do with the scope. That creates a complicated discussion. Um, but this is another one of my gripes with the infield. The way the Tigers ended last season, they had their best defensive third baseman playing first base. They had the worst shortstop in the league playing shortstop defensively. They had Nico Goodrum, uh, after scope got hurt toward the tail end of last season, they had their best defensive shortstop at second base in Nico Goodrum. Um, you know, you draft Torkelson and you make him a third baseman. I don't think there's anything wrong with that experiment. I get it. I get it more than most people, but chances are he's still most likely going to end up at first base because you're going to have a need. And now we're talking about, okay, uh, let's put Paredes at second base. So let's move our best, you know, some days we'll have our best defensive second baseman, which is Jonathan Scope play third base. And it's like, I think it's all being overthought a little bit. But I also think the mindset A.J. Hinch is bringing is a little bit like early 2000s A's, which baseball kind of got into this idea that offense was way more important than defense, and I think that's kind of uh, been corrected a little bit in the past five years or so. I think it's offense that gets you paid, um, but defense is still important to playing winning baseball. It can make a huge difference in your pitching staff. Um, just ask the 2019 Tigers pitching staff, what it's like when you don't have a good infield behind you. Um, so I think A.J. Hinge's mindset is like, I want the best bats in the lineup, and we'll figure out where, where we play afterward. I think that's a big reason he's so high on Isak Paredes. Um, that's why we're seeing Willie Castro get this chance. Hinge wants the best bats in order, and the positions can sort themselves out um, later, which is which is another interesting way to look at it. Well, yeah, I agree. One of the de- well, the two big developments in the 2020 season were the bats of Jamer Candelario and Willie Castro, and and both so far in spring training haven't shown that we need to come off that. Is that like these are bats that you need in the lineup? Willie Castro, though, I just. It's hard for me to feel confident about a guy playing shortstop when we have to report on how he throws the ball to first base. Like it's there's like oh you know he you could tell that he was you know the B writers on Twitter you could tell that he was kind of like pushing the ball or he was thinking about it or even the flip to second and I don't know if how do you come where do you go from there if you're having trouble doing like automatic motions like that like is Am I overreacting? Is that or is it a thing? Like I don't know. It's just it. It's kind of weird for a major leaguer to talk about that, especially when we know he's going to be in the lineup. He is such a good hitter. It, it it's just it's just weird for me to sort of like mesh those two ideas together. 
Willie Castro is not going to hit 349 again this year. He had the highest batting average on balls in play in the league by like 30 points. He's bound to regress. But I am sold, increasingly sold, that he has the bat of a major league regular. You know, he's not going to hit 349, but he, even if he hits 260 with a little bit of pop, that's pretty good for a middle infielder. And, and he might just hit higher than that. He hit at every level of the minors. He hit over 300 his last full year in Toledo. I'm, I'm beginning to be fully sold on his bat. He is a terrible defender. Willie, I'm sorry. You can watch him take infield. You can see it on the backfield in spring training. His footwork is just not the same. You watch him compared to Nico Goodrum or Zach Short, and he is clearly a worse defender. Um, I've seen this guy make errors in rudimentary infield drills where I'm like, eh, feel like I would have taken a cleaner round of infield right there than Willie Castro would have. Um, and then we've seen it. I think he has three errors already in spring training. His throws are bad because his footwork is bad. People have kind of started saying, oh, his glove is fine. It's just like his throwing arm. That's not totally true. His feet are bad. And if your feet are bad, your glove's going to be bad and your arm's going to be bad. And that probably means you're not going to be a very good shortstop. The question, can he get better? Can he be like Marcus Simeon, who like went to boot camp with Ron Washington and then suddenly went from the worst shortstop in the league to one of the best? Like, maybe, you know, you never want to rule it out. Um, AJ Hinge just talked about, yeah, infielders really can improve over time, especially at the major league level. Like, maybe uh, it just takes one thing to kind of click, but... Just looking at the actions, looking at the footwork, I, I don't see it. I think moving into second base would make that throw a lot easier. Um, wouldn't have to cover quite as much ground. I think second base ultimately is going to make a lot more sense. Which, you know, as you're moving pieces around, you try to project the team from this year to the next year, or even just this season. It's like, oh, okay, well, you can't play short, move him to second. Well, we're, we're trying to get Esau time at second so we can figure out if he plays second and so it's just one of those things where it's you uh you solve one issue or you think you solve one issue and you might create two more and that's and that's one of the intriguing things as we try to forecast how this team's going to look uh james you talk about willie's bat and you are believing in it what about jamer because that was one of those things where we thought yeah i don't i don't he just might not have it then he went on a tear last year, and and he, like I said, he's hit well in spring training so far. Are you a believer in his bat? What do the numbers say? Yeah, uh, that, another interesting one. I've said it on Twitter. I said it on the radio with Dan Dickerson. That I, I really didn't believe it last year, and he had like five good games in a row. I was like, okay, he's bound to regress, right? And he just didn't. So I would start tweeting, Jamer Candelario just keeps hitting. And I tweeted that probably like a dozen times last year because he just kept hitting. He never really stopped. And so far in spring, he's looked pretty good. He's hit the ball well. Um, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to pull up some of the numbers um, right now as we speak. Well, I remember last year he was not – he didn't see like hardly any breaking balls. And so that was one of the things that you kept tweeting about was – Look, he's hitting fastballs right now, but I pitchers have access to the same numbers you and I do. So they're going to know that this guy is struggling to hit off-speed pitches. And that was one of the things that we thought, here comes the regression. He's going to see more off-speed. And 
he did see more off speed, but as your uh, as your tweets would suggest, he also kept hitting. Yeah. So I don't know. Like, and he's a he's a switch hitter. I, there's a couple switch hitters in this uh, in this infield, which is interesting. I don't I don't know. Maybe maybe AJ has talked about this. How much is that? How valuable is that to have like a, a couple switch hitters? Like, is it doesn't get talked about as much as you positional versatility, but I feel like that that's a positive. I, I think it's a positive, and it does give you some flexibility. It's also AJ's kind of talked about. You almost have to evaluate them as two different players, right? Like the right-handed Jamer Candelario and the left-handed Jamer Candelario are two different players is basically when you're filling out the lineup card that's the way you have to view it almost so i think that's kind of interesting um you're definitely right on candelario i mean he still hit 189 against breaking balls last year not very good 164 the year before that he handled off speed like change ups a little bit better last year i think he made that adjustment better than i expected him to but he still struggled. So again, this year I think he's gonna see, he's go- only going to continue to see fewer and fewer fastballs because this is the big leagues. But he hit everything hard. He barreled the ball up um, at a really high rate last year. There are a lot of underlying things that uh, suggest he could continue to play well. I do still worry about the breaking ball thing. I think he's gonna get a steady diet of breaking balls even more this season. Um, so he's going to have to be able to hit some spin to really continue. But I also don't think he's that like, Oh, for 17, like DFA type guy we saw in 2019. I think he's probably somewhere in the middle between 2019 and 2020 Jamer. Is Zach short, a legit big leaguer or projected to be a legit big leaguer? I'm getting on the Zach short train. Ooh, this is good. He is the best infielder in this system defensively. He, this guy can field. He passes the eye test. Uh, scouts have always said he had an MLB-ready glove. I don't know his metrics from the minors, but I have a feeling they're really good. Uh, Zach Short can field. Can he hit enough to be a big leaguer? Eh, you know, that's probably questionable, but he has some pop and he walks a lot. And so I think that profile in itself bodes really well. He's kind of been viewed by scouts as like his ceiling is a good utility guy. And that I think that's probably realistic. I I like to see I like to see a world where Zach Short is like fan favorite like Don Kelly and he gets inserted uh, late in like a postseason game to play short and you know has some bloop hit fall in that scores a run and he's like a Detroit folk hero. I think that's uh, best case scenario for Zach Short. It's a good life. That's a good life to live. Yeah. Oh yeah, that'd be great. He'll be loved forever. Jake Rogers, backup catcher, uh, is that where where are we at with that? Whether he's going to be able to, because uh, I think Haas and you know put him in left field. I I feel like the the book's kind of written on him, and obviously we know that uh, Wilson Ramos is going to be the starter. Griner getting the pitch, we haven't seen it to the face, which thankfully he's okay. We haven't seen him as much recently. Is that picture the backup catcher? picture i guess more specifically any clearer i really don't think it is i think maybe the one guy who had done anything to impress was griner and i don't know that he had done a ton but he had a couple balls hard and looked really good in batting practice which doesn't mean much but yeah now you know now he's gonna miss um at least a whole week after after taking a ball to the face 
I don't think Jake Rogers has done much to improve his stock. He's struggled at the plate. Um, AJ Hinch has been working with him a lot defensively. Dustin Garneau gets overlooked a little bit. He's on a minor league deal. He's your most experienced catcher. He has a lot of MLB experience. He's been very solid, very adequate. Like, if you want to carry him because he knows how to work with pitchers and, and give Jake Rogers some time in AAA, that makes sense. Uh, so, I don't know. I think I think Reiner and Rogers are on the 40-man, so you still have to think they have the inside edge. Can, you know... Jake Rogers is going to get every shot because he has the upside, because he, in theory, has the best glove. But it hasn't quite shown up, again, in these spring training games yet, and even, you know, based on his track record in major league games and minor league games and at the alternate site, it doesn't seem like he's quite lived up to the hype defensively in addition to struggling to hit at the plate. So that's a long way to say I don't think we have any more clarity at and who's going to be the backup catcher. I think Jake Rogers will spend the majority of this season as the backup catcher simply because the Tigers have to find out, like, okay, is he going to be our dude or not? But opening day, I don't know. I think there's a strong case to be made for Jake getting some more ABs in Toledo. I don't know if the Toledo season being delayed a month now. Yeah, does that's a big factor. There, so, yeah. Uh, AJ Hinch claims that will not be a factor. He said doesn't set good precedent for like your clubhouse if, oh, that well this guy's only on the team because we don't want him like at the alternate training site for a month. But for a guy like Jake Rogers, I don't know. I I almost think that helps his chances of being the guy because you don't you want him hitting. You want him hitting real pitching, and it's not like you have another catcher who's going to clearly be better. So. Just by just by sheer benefit of the doubt, maybe Jake Rogers still gets this spot. I don't know, but I think he needs to do something to inspire a little more optimism in these next couple weeks. Speaking of optimism, uh, anytime Spencer Torkelson does anything at third base, uh, like MLB Pipeline, MLB in general on Twitter, the Tigers on Twitter and stuff, uh, they hype that. They hype that uh, very much, and. You know, he did make a couple nice plays. He's still kind of... You can tell that he doesn't have a natural, like, you know, toss at the first from third uh, arm motion. It kind of looks like what I was talking about with Willie. He's kind of, like, guiding the ball a little bit as he's throwing. Like, maybe he's thinking a little bit. Uh, You said earlier you think he's going to end up at first. And I think a lot of people, if you gave him some true serum, would say that is most likely the outcome. But... For the sake of this, what do you think of him at third and the limited times you've been able to kind of see him play the position? Yeah, I was... Uh, last year at the alternate side, I was like, oh, this guy moves really well. Like, he can definitely... He has the mobility to play third. Um, just like his actions with his glove weren't good, and that probably was because he didn't have much experience. Watching him this spring, just even in, like, morning workouts and stuff... I've seen this a little bit with Willie Castro too, like maybe almost being overcoached where they've become so worried about the fundamentals that they're starting to look robotic. Like I definitely have seen that in Torkelson at third. I think he's moving more stilted, maybe because he's trying to be so perfect. Um, He made a nice diving play in a spring training game at third, so that that bodes well. But um, yeah, I've, I've actually liked it less than I did last summer. Um, 
still doesn't look natural over there. His throwing arm is a really interesting discussion. He's coming from a position where he didn't really have to throw playing first. In college, in the Cape Cod League, he played a lot of outfield, and he worked with coaches to throw kind of more overhead, to throw less like an infielder and more like an outfielder. And I think you almost see that like in his rhythm now, where at third, you got to get the ball out quickly, but you got to zip it on the line. I think he almost has like an outfielder's throwing motion now. So that's something that's going to have to be sorted out, too. You want a strong arm for your third baseman. I think uh, Torkelson's arm is, you know, average at best. So um, a lot to play out there. And unless the Tigers have another first baseman walk through the door, I think, you know, the safe bet is that that this guy still ends up at first just because you need a first baseman eventually. And and I'm going to ask this question knowing that it's partially unfair because of what happened last season with the pandemic and not having a minor league season and all that stuff. So I acknowledge that's somewhat unfair, but we're here. We don't have any other choice. It's kind of is time kind of ticking a little bit on Cody Clemens, like whether he can be a, a big leaguer. Oh yeah, it absolutely is. Just by the very nature that that he's an older prospect to begin with. He was a college guy, um, and then he kind of lost, unfortunately, a whole year of development uh because of the pandemic so he's 24 he's about to turn 25 when you're 25 and then you're you're kind of pushing it you know um cody clemens has been an interesting guy to follow but i think the bottom line is he hit let's see he hit 238 in high a lakeland in 2019 and he got an end of year promotion to erie where he hit 170 and that was only 13 games, but his track record of hitting the ball in the minors has not been great. He did do pretty well at West Michigan in uh, in 2018, but for all of 2019, he did not hit the ball really well. He got just hot enough kind of later in the year to get bumped up to Erie. The reason we see so much of him is because the Tigers don't have great organizational depth at second base. They really just kind of need a guy to... Fill in at second base. Cody Clemens probably has your highest upside there. And he, he seems to do a good job. Like, he doesn't at all look lost in these Major League Spring Training games. Um, but I, I haven't seen a lot that really makes me think, okay, like, this guy's an everyday big leaguer. Uh, you know, I think he probably starts another interesting question. Where do you start him this year? Do you start him back in Erie? Do you just, because he's about 25, bump him up to AAA? Um, I don't know. I'll be I'll be interested to see if he starts in Toledo or Erie. I could almost seeing it see it being Toledo, because you kind of want to speed it along and 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 see like okay can can he handle it or not? If not, let's move on. Let's find another second baseman. We're gonna touch on this more in a future episode where we dissect the state of Major League Baseball. Shifts are in the news right now. Is AJ Hinch a big shift or? He is a big shift guy, uh, but in the way he views an infield, how much does that change whether Paredes can play second base, whether to put Jamer at third or at first, and you know what you do with Willie Castro? What, how much does the shift sort of like negate what could be like deficiencies among your infield? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a little more positionless. Like, it's almost like basketball now, where I think your shortstop is still generally 
you know, sometimes when you see the shortstop and second baseman basically trading places, because you want your shortstop to cover more ground in that particular shift. So there's still a lot of importance on your shortstop, but I do think it can make your, you know, it makes it a little different. I don't think range is always quite as important for your second baseman. But even when you're playing in the shift, you want your shifted players to to be able to have some range as well. Um, so I don't know. I don't. I, it, long story short, it probably doesn't have a huge impact. Listening to Hinch talk about it this week, it's pretty interesting because this guy in Houston was one of the real, you know, innovators of some advanced shifts. This guy who would, you know, use a four-man outfield at times. Um, and now they're talking about, you know, they're basically going to ban the shift in in Double A this year as an experiment. Um, you have to have four infielders on the dirt, and you have to have two infielders on each side of second base. Um, Hinch said he fully supports it. He thinks the jury, the jury is still out on what they should or shouldn't do or what the consequences and unintended consequences would be. Uh, but here's a quote from Hinch. He said, I like to deploy the shift, and I have for a number of years whatever's best for the game we're here of stewards of the game the game's bigger than me the game's bigger than any manager so there are obviously plenty of people who criticize the shift and how it's contributed to the increase in launch angles which has contributed to the increase in strikeouts which has contributed to this brand of baseball we see now where it's you know walk strikeout home run um and i think that's veered far off the point we were talking about with like positioning uh but it's something to play out personally I like the shift. Why wouldn't you position guys where you're most likely to get out? I also, as a hitter, hit the ball the opposite field, man. Come on. I like the shift. I think the shift should stay. Yeah, and like I said, we'll we'll dive into that more in the future. But I tend to agree with you as a as a guy who uh, grew up playing baseball. I was a left-handed hitter. I loved hitting the ball opposite field. It was awesome because as soon as you get up to the plate, you got to shift, hit where they ain't. I always, I always thought that was uh, a great part of the game of baseball, and it's just, I don't know, maybe it's not cool anymore. But, uh, but anyway, uh, you've said this on other podcasts. Do you projecting the future with the infield as we kind of wrap up this infield uh, discussion? You think the Tigers are going to, or they should? make a splash signing and free agency next year or you know down the line you think that might be the way that they sort of solve their infield deficiencies is that what you think is the most likely course of action absolutely the tigers have a rare opportunity to add a premium shortstop next offseason right now Corey Seager, Carlos Correa, Javi Baez, Francisco Lindor and Trevor Story are all scheduled to be free agents think a couple of those guys will probably sign extensions but you're probably still going to have at least three pretty premium shortstops on the free agent market this is one reason why again like why why are we messing around with like i i guess willie castro at shortstop now makes is fine but ultimately i think the shortstop of the future is going to be signed next offseason there should be a couple different guys to choose from the tigers should have the payroll to to open up the checkbook um, you will have to get a guy to, you know, convince a guy to sign to say, Hey, we want you to be the first real building block and like our ramp up toward contention. 
that could be a little bit of an issue. Can the guy to come to Detroit over uh, New York or L.A. or something might be a little bit of a concern. Uh, but I think the Tigers are going to be in great shape. I think Trevor Story would be a great fit. A.J. Hinch is obviously going to have ties to Carlos Correa. That actually goes back pre-Houston. Hinch, when he worked in the scouting department in San Diego, was one of the first guys to ever go watch Carlos Correa in Puerto Rico, which is which is interesting. Um, so, so anyway, I think if the Tigers do not sign a star shortstop next offseason, then it's then any criticisms of the front office get real. Then the, you know there's really no excuse for that unless I don't know unless Willie Castro we decide by the, the end of this year is the greatest shortstop of all time. I think uh, I think you have to strike in next year's free agent market, and if you don't, there's not much of an excuse for it anymore. Well, you say front office. I was gonna say it might be the test of what Chris Illich has sort of told the fan base is like, you know, bear with us when the time comes, we'll strike and, you know, he'd be willing to open up the checkbook. And, you know, I, I'm, I think the fans should give him the benefit of the doubt, but I think it all kind of points to this might be the first opportunity to see whether uh, he would follow up on that. Cause obviously he's not his father, but I, this could be his first sort of big, player-wise move with the uh, with the rebranding of the Detroit Tigers. So I think that's something very interesting uh, to follow. And I, and I think, Kieran, if, you know, if we had Chris Illich or Al Avila or AJ Hinch, which Chris, Al, AJ, feel free to come on the show. Just shoot me a text. We'll have you on any time. Uh, you know, and if you, we gave him truth serum, I think they're thinking the same thing. I think they've already you know, kind of circled the dates in their calendar and are, are hoping to make a splash and sign a shortstop next year. I think, uh, I think, you know, they're thinking about that just the way we are. All right. Very good. So to sum up, this infield discussion is, it was frustrating a couple years ago. It was frustrating last year. It's frustrating right now. It's making your head hurt. And it's just going to have to play itself out in some facet but it does make for some interesting discussion about you know how how you value certain positions and how you you know what tools can get you in a lineup i really like that tidbit about aj saying like get the bats and then we'll figure out the rest so uh very 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 interested to see how that will play out okay so we'll shift gears here a little bit by the time that we publish this podcast there will be about a day out you have a story coming up on Daniel Norris and Daniel Norris has kind of been a little bit of the forgotten man in the the young Tigers rotation in the sense that you got to remember the hype that he had as a prospect the band man and then when the Tigers acquired him that was universally considered you know a really good move and it just hasn't worked out it hasn't been a smooth ride well I'll say that it hasn't been a smooth ride the van has broken down a little bit but I think there's still talent there. I really like him as your uh, universal chess piece on the pitching staff where you can start him, you can have him you know, come in relief for long innings, you can use him in spots against lefties or whatever. I think that's a fine role. That's easy for me to say because I'm not the guy who was the top prospect. I'm not the guy who had an ESPN article written about him. I'm not the guy who's been a starting pitcher in Major League Baseball and knows what that feels like to go out 
you know for the first inning and maybe he doesn't maybe he doesn't view himself as like that's the best use for him i don't know but but you have you have an article coming out with with daniel norris so why don't you kind of tease it a little bit uh about what sort of the premise is yeah i had a long talk with daniel norris a few days ago and as is per usual with daniel norris he was he was really introspective he was very thoughtful he he kind of looked inside himself a lot but his grander point was he feels like people have never really got to see the real Daniel Norris as a starting pitcher. And I do think there is something to that. Um, he, he feels like he was basically judged on 2017 and 2018 as a starter. And you could extend that into 2019, all seasons where he was pitching through various injuries, most notably a groin injury, um, that really set him back, and he had surgery on that groin in, in 18. Justin Verlander called him the day after that surgery. He said, you're not going to be yourself for a year and a half. Norris said, what? They told me 8 to 12 weeks. Verlander said, no, I had a similar procedure. You're not going to be yourself for a year and a half. If you remember the idea of like a Verlander plateau in like, you know, 15, 16, 17, that was kind of right around that time. Uh, turned out Verlander was very much right. That's what Daniel Norris has encountered. So he was this rising prospect who was then labeled the man in the van, who was then labeled injury prone, who last year was finally going to get a shot in the rotation. And then this whole pandemic thing happened and he got COVID and he missed all summer camp and he got one start and he got totally rocked. And then he got moved into this bullpen role. Granted, he had a 2.77 ERA in 13 bullpen appearances last year. That's pretty good. So I think we take two things from that. Daniel Norris can be, and actually has been very recently, a good pitcher in the major leagues. But number two is, well, is he actually just best suited in the bullpen? Where he can go one time through a lineup. Where he can go max effort for one, two, three innings um, and not have to worry about it beyond that. I think there's an argument to be made there. I think if I were a manager... Uh, you know, that's that's probably why I would have Daniel Norris coming out of my bullpen. But there's a part of Daniel Norris that very much wants to be a starter and feels like he just hasn't quite gotten... He's gotten opportunities, but he hasn't been able to like feel like himself and get that opportunity when he was fully healthy. Um, and so that's weighed on him a lot. I think he, to some degree... He, you know, he said he, he feels like he's been a disappointment. There's a guy who at one time was the number 18 prospect in baseball. He was the number one prospect in the Blue Jays system. And he's now kind of been this middling up-and-down pitcher who's now, like, mostly a long reliever. So Daniel Norris is very cognizant of that. It, it bothers him. But we have seen such life on his fastball. He's finally got his velocity back. His changeups become really good. I, I do believe Daniel Norris can be effective. Um, I do kind of like him in the role the Tigers have him in right now. There's part of Norris that very much wants to be a starter, though. I don't know how the, the numbers are going to shape up or what the chances of that actually happening are this year, but it was just interesting to talk uh, with Daniel to dive more into all that. It's honestly better in his words than my words, so it'll, it'll he'll be quoted heavily, and, and uh, hopefully you guys can all read that story this week. Yes, that will be on The Athletic. And you know what? For the record, I think that's fair. I think him feeling that way is fair. I like the role that he's sort of slated for this year. But I completely get when he's like, look, like that wasn't even me out there on the mound that you guys are sort of judging 
whether I can be a starter or not. So, uh, you know, when when this stuff comes up, like, you know, it kind of ties into the infield stuff, actually, too. A lot of this stuff will play out naturally in the sense that there are going to be guys who get hurt. <laughs> and so there might be a time where he's going to get a handful of consecutive starts because a pitcher, you know, uh, you know, ahead of him in the starting rotation gets hurt. And so that will that will kind of work itself out. Same thing with the infield where we're like, does this guy fit? Should, you know, Isak be on the major league roster or whatever? Like, unfortunately, there's a chance someone's going to get hurt and that decision will kind of come up naturally. So I... I hope Norris gets his shot. Just hearing you talk about it and some of the things that that he said, and I'm sure this will, I'll feel the same way once I read the story itself. I don't have early access to your stories. I just want to put that out there for the record. Like I don't get to read it before anybody else, so it's not like I've read it or anything. I got a sneak preview. I, I haven't even started writing it, Kieran. I'm worried about watching college basketball this weekend. I'm trying to, you know, like take a girl on a date. Like, you know, so <laughs> I haven't read it either. Hopefully I get it done Monday. Yeah, well, hopefully. And uh, in between all that, we'll have this pod up and going for uh, for the start of the week. But, but yeah, I, I do hope that he gets, gets a shot there. So uh, I found this to be a pretty productive discussion. It's one of those things that probably three weeks from now it'll be old news because someone will get, like I said, someone will get hurt, someone will get cut, and you know, and what we're saying here doesn't have any merit anymore. But I really enjoyed it. It's one of the more interesting things about being a Tigers fan right now or following the Tigers is that there's a lot of pieces on the chessboard, and you just kind of want to see, you want to debate, you want to discuss with your friends about what the best moves are. So I found this to be a, a very, very thoughtful discussion as we look at the Detroit Tigers infield in 2021 and beyond. So uh, I want to plug our Twitter account. It is at turn corner pod. It's very hard to come up with a at for this uh, name because a lot are taken and there's a character limit, but at turn corner pod, you can follow us on Twitter. We'll, we have a link to our Apple podcast page. Please subscribe rate review we would really appreciate it we're at uh, we're at the ground floor with this thing and we hope we're only going up so at turn corner pod you can search us on spotify and apple and uh like i said please rate review subscribe all right so we'll do this again next week and we'll have a deep dive like i said into the state of major league baseball cody's got some thoughts on that you kind of tease it there with the shift uh the shift discussion so i think it's going to be really good and then we'll get to the latest happenings with the detroit tigers so for cody stavenhagen i am kieran steckley this is turning the corner thank you for listening